Great. Well, uh, lovely to see you. Uh, thanks for coming tonight. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is just so much uh, that we can thank you for. Uh, we know we will spend eternity uh, praising you, thanking you, adoring you for your, your goodness to us. Then we will know fully and we will understand in a way that we never could uh, in this life. But thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for those glimpses that we get. Thank you for your revelation to us uh, that shows us who you are, who we are, uh, and the future uh, of this world. Father, we thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that at the center of it all, he is there as the yes and the amen to all of your promises. And Father, I pray that as again, we seek to understand who he is, as we seek to love him more. I pray that as we see him in the pages of scripture, that our hearts would burn that we would long to be more like him, to be closer to him, and that daily we would come to the cross and to the empty tomb and find life and life in all its fullness. Father, I pray that as we consider this son of man, that we would rejoice to know that we have been reckoned with him because of your goodness and your grace to us. Father, be with us this evening by your spirit. Engage our minds and engage our hearts so that we may know that we have met with the living God. We commit this evening to you, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. So we've been on this journey uh, looking at the way the, Lord, the New Testament describes the Lord Jesus. Uh, this has just been a, a snapshot. There are lots of other ways. Um, but just ways that he's described, and particularly those that are rooted in uh, the Old Testament, and taking some of those principles and some of those um, ideas and tracing them through the Bible. It is a glorious thing that the Word of God is like a Blackpool stick of rock, uh, that you look at one end of the rock and it says Blackpool, you look at the other end of the rock, it says Blackpool, you snap it in the middle and it says Blackpool there, and it says Blackpool there, and you eat a bit and it keeps saying Blackpool there. This, this year, the FIC Leaders Conference is in Blackpool. So I might be able to get myself a proper visual aid and then eat it on the way home. That almost wherever you open this, you see the Lord Jesus Christ is at the beginning, is at the end, and he is on every page. And sometimes it's obvious where he is, and sometimes it's not quite so obvious. But we can trace these themes through, uh, pulling threads together that point us to at the Lord Jesus Christ. And tonight I want us to begin in Mark chapter 10, page 1015 in the Church Bibles, Mark chapter 10. Jesus is on his way uh, to Jerusalem. There is this astonishing verse that we're not going to get into. Verse 32, they're on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. He knew exactly why they were going to Jerusalem. It's got nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it's an amazing verse. But Jesus was leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. And as they're on this journey, uh, they're about to come uh, to Jericho and James and John, the uh, uh, the brothers have been nudging each other and uh, spurred on by their mom, uh, are keen to ask Jesus something. And we get in this chapter uh, exactly the same words from the mouth of Jesus twice. He says, once to, to James and John and once to a blind man called Bartimaeus, he says those words, what do you want me to do for you? Exactly the same words to these two groups. And we see firstly the wrong answer in verse 37 to so James and John replied verse 36 what do you want me to do for you he asked they replied let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory they've got this vision of Jesus as the conquering king as the one whose kingdom will cover the face of the earth and they know the most important places are on the right of Jesus and on the left of Jesus and they want to be there and so that's what they want Jesus to do for them Later on, they come to Jericho, and there's a blind man uh, sitting there, uh, blind Bartimaeus, and 
He calls out, verse 47, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, you all know what that means because of previous sessions, have mercy on me. And he gets told to pipe down, but he goes it again, all the more stronger. Verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him exactly the same question. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. There's a wrong answer and there's a right answer. The wrong answer is that they, James and John, think that authority equals glory. That the way to glory is to put themselves forward, is to associate themselves with the king. Everybody else will see that and they will take their privileged position and they will receive glory from that position. There's the wrong answer. Why did Bartimaeus give the right answer? Well, it was an answer born out of faith, faith in the Lord Jesus. But it was an answer that came from that phrase in verse 47, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. See, what we see with Bartimaeus is that he recognizes that the way to glory, the way to um, a privileged position with Jesus is through humility, is through humiliation. He places himself in a position where everybody else is ridiculing him and telling him to be quiet. But he sees that the road to glory embraces humility and so what's the difference what's the difference between these two things how do we find out what it is that makes the difference well it's a startling difference and it's there in verse 45 right between these two accounts as jesus finishes off his discussion with james and john he says these words for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and the question we need to ask ourselves is, why is that so startling? Why should we once again be falling off our seats in shock at the words that uh, Jesus said? We've said it before, that because of our different culture, both in um, chronological terms and geographical terms, the, some of the things that are shocking in the Bible don't shock us. And sometimes we need to re recover that shock. Why does it say even? You notice that? It doesn't say, for the Son of Man did not come to it. It says, for even the Son of Man. There is something radically shocking about the fact that it's the Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so why is it? Why does uh, Jesus um, refer to himself as the Son of Man? Why is it okay for Jesus to talk about himself in the third person, but isn't okay for us to do that? What is it about the Son of Man that makes this verse so shocking and so startling for us in this context? And that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at this idea of the Son of Man and of authority. And as always, we're going to start right back at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. Which, annoyingly, is on page 3, obviously. So where do we see authority in the creation account. As we go back to the beginning, um, what, what shape, what picture do we get of authority? Well, right at the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, we read these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. We see straight away that there is an innate authority in the cosmos, and it belongs to God himself. He is the definition of authority. What he says happens. The whole of Genesis 1 is this recurring phrase, and God said, and it was so. There is ultimate authority. It's not given to him. It's not brought or found anywhere else. It is in God, and he has it by the very nature of who he is. There is authority. But the wonder of creation, the wonder of what happens in Genesis is that God delegates he gives his some of his authority to mankind verse 26 then god said let us make mankind in our image in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground so god created mankind in his own image in the image of god he created them male and female he created them god blessed them and said to them be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and subdue it Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We've looked at some of these principles before that 
God is the authority, the authority figure. He is the king. But he, in, he gives that authority. He gives um, uh, kingship and rule to humanity to exercise. They have to be like him on earth. And so we see words like rule and subdue. There is element to which God gives them something of himself, makes them in his image to enable them to function, to live uh, like he does. There is this given authority and this authority to be used. We see this as we get into chapter two and at verse 19. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he, he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. What's going on here? Well, the man, Adam, is exercising his authority over the natural world. To name something in this culture is to exercise authority over that. Now, this is a perfect, God-given, God-shaped, God-reflecting authority. Here in the Garden of Eden, in these two perfect chapters at the start of the Bible, there is authority. Authority is not a bad thing. Authority used in the correct way is not a bad thing. It is a thing that is glorious. It is a thing that is an exercise of perfection. And we see it here as um, so Adam, ha uh, God has made Adam and exercised authority over him. So he then commissions Adam to exercise authority over the animal kingdom. There is innate authority. There is given authority. There is then used authority. But as we see so quickly, there is then abused authority. Chapter three. Now, the steak was more crafted than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What we see in chapter three is a reversal of the authority that is set out in the Garden of Eden. So in Eden, we have this authority where God is here, where humanity is here with Adam, with a godly and a righteous and a holy authority that is exercised over Eve. He is to lead her as she is his perfect, suitable helper. And then under them is creation, are the animals and the birds or, or the fish of the sea. And they're to exercise a loving, godlike authority over them. So what happens in chapter three? Well, all of it is reversed. See, at the top, we have the snake. The animal takes his position of authority over creation. And he comes to Eve first. And Adam takes a, a backward seat. Verse two, the woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Eve twists God's word slightly. God didn't exactly say that. Eve adds to it, takes away from it, modifies it slightly. Again, placing herself in authority over the word of God. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. Again, the snake is now acting as if he is God, dictating terms, he is at the top. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. Oh, okay. So the first time since chapter verse one, it turns out that Adam is there, not exercising the authority that God has given him, not living out who he's supposed to be from chapter one and 26 to 28, from chapter two, verses 19. He's not exercising that authority. The authority that's been given is being abused. Then the eyes of the, sorry, uh, she, uh, uh, who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The fall is about a reversal of authority. That the God-given um, pattern, uh, the God-ordained, the, the perfect authority is reversed and is broken. And so what we see in the garden, what we see in these early stages is that right use of authority leads to blessing. That when Adam lived out who he was, when he displayed this um, acceptance and obedience to God's authority and exercised his own authority, there was blessing. But misuse of authority, it leads to exile because this abuse, this abused authority is then lost. Chapter three, verse 23. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Humanity was exiled away from the place of blessing, away from the opportunity to have intimate connection with the Lord, but sent off into exile, into uh, the world away from the tree of life, away from God's presence and away from Eden. And as we see, everything that happens in 
one and two, and then particularly in three, sets a pattern for what is to come throughout the rest of time. So straight away into Genesis 4, we see the sons of Adam. We see Cain and we see Abel, and we see the pattern again. God has innate authority, but authority is given to Cain and Abel. Uh, verse two, later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain, sorry, that should be 2B, not 2A. Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. We're seeing here a, a working through of the authority given to humanity. That Cain is working the soil, he is looking after the land. Abel is keeping flocks, he's looking after livestock. They're exercising God-given authority over uh, the, the sphere of influence that they've been given. And we see it being used, verse 4. But Abel also brought an offering, fat portions for some of the firstborn of his flock. Uh, sorry, verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Abel is using the authority that he is given. He's put it into action and he's bringing it back and he's uh, exercising this for the glory of God. But we also see that it's abused that Cain is misusing this authority. Now, we don't know the full deep specifics of what it was that Cain did that was wrong. Uh, almost certainly it was his heart, but the mechanics of it, um, we could talk about different things. But it's clear that the authority he'd been given, he wasn't using in the way that he was supposed to be doing. He was misusing the sphere of influence that the Lord had given him. And so, particularly we see in verse 8, at the end point of this, now Cain said to the brother Abel, let's go out into the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Again, this authority to, uh, to exercise God's rule, to look like God, to work out the image in him, uh, was abused and it leads to this first murder. And this abused authority then leads to a lost authority. Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain is sent into exile. From a place of exile that Adam and Eve have been sent to in the first place, he's then sent to further exile. That the land that was already cursed will be even more cursed uh, to Cain. He will be a restless wanderer. He will never find his home. His life will be lived in exile, away from the blessings of God. Right use of authority leads to blessing. Misuse of authority leads to exile. And the sons of Adam, as this continues, merges into the sons of man. We've talked about this before, but chapter 5 and verse 1 does something that we don't immediately notice in English. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they're created. When Adam had lived 130 years. Now, when it says Adam, when it says mankind, when it says mankind, when it says Adam, all of that is the same Hebrew word. It's all Adam. It's the same word because the word is linked to the meaning of the ground. It's, um, and what we see is it's heading on is that there is this singular and this corporate way of understanding this word, that Adam is, was a man, but also he was a, a representative of all of mankind, of humanity. That there is a sense to which Adam is singular on his own, and there's a sense in which he is corporate, that he um, stands on behalf of everybody else. And so this son of mankind these sons of mankind are sons of adam this idea of son of man in hebrew is ben adam son of adam son of man and so we've got this whole idea that there is a representative head who is the son of man and all of these sons of man come from there and as mankind continues we see the working out of this given authority, used authority, and abused authority. And it comes to a head in chapter 6 and verse 5, just before the flood. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time. We're almost at a stage where there isn't even use of authority. It's just gone straight to abuse of authority, that here is humanity still displaying the image of God still endowed with the authority that God doesn't give to anybody else, anything else in creation. And yet we've reached this devastating state where verse six, the Lord regretted that he'd made human beings on the earth 
and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move on the ground. But I regret that I have made them. Once again, the misuse of authority, it drags down. You could read that and think, well, hang on a minute. What have the animals and the what have they got to do with it? It's not their fault. It's humanity that is so horrible and so distant from the Lord. But again, it's the point. The authority given to humanity incorporates, encompasses everything. And so just as humanity's authority is being abused, so it affects the whole of creation. And it drags down and ultimately leads to exile. And it seems that in this pattern, there are different stages of exile. We just get further and further away. That we go from Adam and Eve being kicked out of Eden to Cain being almost kind of kicked out of comfort and um, peace. He's going to be this restless wanderer. To then the whole human race being exiled through the flood. Apart from Noah, who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so as we see, one of the outworkings of the fall is this complete uh, abuse of the authority that the good God has given to humanity. And we see this familiar pattern in the patriarchs with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. Turn with me to Genesis 12, page 13. One of the fundamental texts when it comes to understanding the story of the Bible. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. The Lord has said to Abraham, Go to your, from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. Once again, God is giving authority. God is clearly the one in control. He is the one with authority. Uh, all the way through, it says, I, 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 I. God is in control. He is the one with the authority. And yet he's calling Abraham to, to follow him, to live out what it means to have God in control. He's going to make him into a great nation. Well, to be a nation, there needs to be authority within that nation. I will make your name great. Obviously, ultimately, this is all about the Lord and his name. But through that, Abraham's name will be great. His, his family will be great. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And we see this idea here that this, this delegated authority, this authority that is given that we first saw in Eden and now seeing again, leads to blessing. So if Adam and Eve had exercised that authority they were given in Eden correctly, it would have led to blessing. And so here we see it again. The authority that I give to my people will lead to blessing. But once again, it's misused. We see it in Abraham as he falls short, as he lies about Sarah, as he and his wife um, don't trust fully the promises of God. And um, Ishmael is the fruit of that mistrust. They take this authority that is supposed to look at God. When we talked about someone who looks both ways and takes this authority from God and doesn't exercise it in the way that they should. We see it in, in Isaac, who follows the same sin as his father. And again, um, lies about his wife and uh, looking to protect himself rather than trust the God who has given him these blessings. And then where do we start with Jacob? I mean, it's just a, a catalogue of um, misusing and um, misunderstandings, probably doing him a bit of a favour, but not living out uh, the authority, that the man that he was supposed to be. We see it in Joseph, don't we? Where his brothers uh, take the authority they have and they abuse it by um, leaving him for dead, selling him off to Egypt, and heading down into uh, to Egypt. And what's interesting about the story of, of Joseph is that we get so taken at the end of Genesis by what is this glorious family reunion that we tend to think that the end of Genesis is this huge happy ending. That Joseph and his um, brothers have been reunited, that Jacob has seen them come together before he dies, uh, and there is this uh, lovely uh, family reunion we forget the fact that they're still in Egypt, that they've gone down because there's been a famine in um, the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they're in Egypt. And so they're still in exile. There still hasn't been a perfect resolution that has brought all of the promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob into fulfillment. There's still a problem. They're still distant. 
And so as Exodus begins, uh, we meet Moses and we see once again this idea of authority and this pattern of authority um, worked out again. You'll be familiar with the story that um, about 400 years passes and uh, the children of Israel, uh, the brothers of Joseph, uh, have grown and there are now well over a million of them. And a king who knew nothing of Joseph has uh, come to power and he turns uh, their life into a misery as he um, forces them into slavery. And in chapter two, there is uh, a miraculous birth that gives um, hope, well, not miraculous birth, miraculous salvation story that brings hope to the people. Uh, but we see this story again. So uh, chapter two and verse 10, when the child grew older, uh, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. Moses is, is given this position through God's miraculous saving of him in the royal household. Moses is rising to the position that he's going to be pretty similar to where Joseph was. And it seems that what Joseph had is being restored in Moses. He is going to have authority in the nation of Egypt. Will he use it in the same way that Joseph did to bring blessing? Well, we see verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. I think grace is great. Here is Moses using this authority. He's going to look out and he's going to see his people. He's going to see how they're being mistreated. And he's going to use this authority that has been given by God in this unique situation. And he's going to bring blessing to God's people. Except this authority is abused. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. There's no doubt there is that the text doesn't give us any option of thinking that this was a righteous killing, that this was the right thing to do. You can see the sneakiness that the furtive behavior is Moses. He checks and makes sure that nobody's looking and then deals with this Egyptian. Verse 13, the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought what I did must have become known. That sinking feeling that we all feel when our sin is discovered. And so this authority that's given, that's used, that's abused, eventually leads to authority being lost. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Once again, right use of authority, it leads to blessing. Misuse of authority leads to exile. And so what do we see? We see that Moses himself has gone into exile. That he has been taken from the place of blessing, the place where he had authority, the place where he was able to live out um, uh, who he was in, in God. And yet he was sent off into exile now once again just as in every situation the lord had a plan in that and we see in moses exile that he is being shaped that he's having all of the the comforts of egypt kind of worked out of him so that he is ready uh, to lead uh, his people uh, into uh, out of egypt but there is that sense that he's being sent uh, into exile as he heads away uh, from from egypt and so what we see as the next few chapters develop is that there is a solution to exile. That just as it seems that God's people have been getting ever further, ever deeper into exile, there is a way out. And that way out is through Exodus. And we see it first in Moses, that we see in uh, chapter three and chapter four, that God appears to Moses and shows Moses that he hasn't forgotten about him. That as Moses sees this bush that is on fire and yet not burning up, he comes closer and he hears the voice of God. Moses, this is holy ground. Take off your sandals. And he speaks to him out of this bush. All of that time of Moses thinking that he'd been forgotten by God. And yet here the Lord speaks and says, I've seen you in your uh, distance. I've seen you in your exile. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to bring you back to your people. And then in chapter four, we see he returns. God says, I'm going to bring you. I'm going to lead you out of this situation that you're in. I'm going to bring you back to be reunited with your people. And what we see for Moses, we then see in the nation itself, that over the next kind of 10 chapters from 5 uh, to 15, there's this confrontation between the authority of God and the authority of Pharaoh. 
and eventually the solution to their exile, to their slavery in Egypt is an exodus, a great bringing out through the power of God that God saves his people from a tyrannical and a merciless master and brings them out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness towards the promised land. And, and the picture is set that humanity will find itself in exile, in slavery, and will be able to do nothing to get itself out. But God will intervene. And as he did uh, in a shadow in the life of Moses, as he did so more clearly in the life of corporate Israel, he is going to do that throughout the Old Testament. So that when people get into exile, they will cry out to the Lord and he will draw them out. He will bring them out and we will see great uh, blessing in that. Unfortunately, as we see with the patriarchs, as we saw with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we see in the monarchy that, again, the purpose of the monarchy was to display God-given authority to the people, to the world, so that they may um, know that God is good and that living with him in control is a glorious thing. And we've seen it, haven't we, in um, the evening services. We've seen how there is this familiar pattern where each new king comes and is given authority by God. They are placed upon the throne and God says, here is the king. We see authority being used. We see them exercising sometimes wise and godly authority over the people. We see it severely being abused. We've seen it, haven't we, with, with Manasseh. And we've seen just desperate things happening. We see how it just gets abused. And then eventually, turn with me to 2 Kings and chapter 17, we see it being lost. That this kingdom that was set up with Saul as the first king and then the great King David, the, one after God, the man after God's own heart, into Solomon, where great blessing was seen. God's authority was on display as Solomon builds up the kingdom. And there is wealth and there is blessing and there is peace and there is rest and it is glorious. But because Solomon abuses his authority, the kingdom splits and his son takes the southern kingdom and Jeroboam takes the northern kingdom. And from then on, the kingdoms are almost exclusively at war. There are times when it's not war, but generally it is. And they just get further and further away. And there are no good kings in Israel in the northern kingdoms. And in chapter 17, we see Hoshea, the last king of Israel, and then Israel exiled because of their sin. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt under the power of Pharaoh, kings of Egypt. They worshipped other gods. They took the authority that God had given them, and they abused it. And so what does that lead to? Uh, well, it leads to... Um, Exile, verse 22, the Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence as he had warned through all of his servants, the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, and they are still there. Misuse of authority leads to exile. The people were taken away from blessing and into exile. And the southern kingdom where we're at the moment on Sunday evenings and we're seeing kings like Hezekiah and uh, Josiah and we're seeing that there were those who wanted to focus upon the law, but generally the trajectory was down and down and down and down. That authority from the kings, from the people, this living out of the image of God they've been given was abused more and more. And we see it in 25, that just as Assyria came and dealt with the north, so Babylon comes, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, and deals with the south. Uh, verse 21, there at Ribla in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. So Judah went into captivity away from her land, into exile, the great promised land, the place of blessing where God's people would be in God's place uh, under his rule and knowing his blessing, living out the authority of God, they're gone. They're not in the land, the land promised to Abraham. They're gone and they're into exile. But while Israel are to be remembered no more, as it said in chapter 17, they're still in exile now, for Judah, things were different. Judah was the recipient of the great promises made to David that there would always be a king on the throne. And so further promises are made that this exile won't be permanent, that there will be another exodus, another bringing out of the people that God is not finished with Judah. And so we get the book of Daniel 
And the book of Daniel is written during the Babylonian exile. So while the people are in exile, the story opens in um, Babylon, page 884. So in Babylon, and we start in the rather more straightforward bit of Daniel in the first six chapters. And there's those familiar stories with the, the flaming fiery furnace and Daniel in the lion's den uh, and Daniel's three friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And we see them um, living out a godly authority in the midst of um, the exile, that there is authority greater than the king of Babylon. And other in this uh, city, which um, doesn't know the Lord and is keen to stamp out all recognition of the Lord, uh, still they stand uh, for him. And as Daniel 6 ends and turns into uh, chapter 7, the second half of Daniel is a real mix of apocalyptic visions and um, interpretations and uh, just a, a real mix of, uh, of life. As, as God shows Daniel what life is really like, puts the curtain back on what's going on. And in Daniel 7, we have uh, this vision uh, of four beasts. And it's interesting, as we begin to understand what's going on here, the language that it's used. So verse, chapter 7 and verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. And we're going to jump to the interpretation first. Uh, an angel tells Daniel that what he's about to see uh, is a picture, in picture language, of kingdoms that are to rise and fall. So each beast that we see is a kingdom that is to come. So Daniel said, in my vision at night, verse two, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the other, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, had, it had four wings like those of a bird. The beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. I wonder if you noticed as we were looking at those beasts, what the common thread through them is. Look at the first beast in verse four at the end. Uh, it was uh, the mind of a human being was given to it. In verse five, at the end, it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Verse six, at the end, the beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. But once again, we see this idea of delegated, of given authority. There is a, 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 an understanding that God is giving these beasts limited but real authority to accomplish his purposes in the world. Verse seven, after that in my vision, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot wherever, whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had 10 horns. And we are to be terrified and shocked uh, and um, cowering from these beasts and for the authority that they seem to have uh, and the ability to be able to exercise that uh, over, um, over the whole world. But as Daniel is seeing this vision, uh, and um, in verse eight, he's kind of contemplating these things. Suddenly, the view changes. Verse nine, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Contrary to the view of what we see in the first part of chapter seven and all these scary beasts, suddenly we get to see who really has authority. We see the one here who has all authority, who has innate authority. No authority is given to him. It is his all um, because of who he is. And it's interesting that this is the only place in the whole of scripture where God is called the ancient of days. Nowhere else is he called that. This is the only place, the only place in, in the Bible where you will find it. I don't know why you think that is. Why here? What is it about this particular place that we need to know that God is called the ancient of days? Well, I think it's because we need to see that he is before all, that he is after all, that he has seen it all. There is nothing new under the sun for him. There is innate authority that he is in control of everything. The, the universe is being worked out on his timescale. 
and that ultimately he is in control. He is the one who is giving authority for a purpose. Why at the moment does Vladimir Putin have authority? I don't know. But that's because I'm not the ancient of days. I don't see it from his point of view. I don't see the grand sweep of history. But what I do see is that the ancient of days is in control and that any authority that is given is delegated from him. And if it's misused, eventually it will be lost uh, and it will be taken away. And so we see this glorious vision. And I think we're supposed to think, well, how does the, the, the messiness of the beast and all of this fear over here and this glory that we see with the ancient of days of thousands upon thousands and 10,000 and 10,000 stood before him. How do we bring these two things together? How can we close the gap between what we see in the messiness of earth and what we see in the glory and the splendor and the majesty of heaven? Verse 13, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Why is it so, such a, um, a startling intervention? Well, look at verse 12. The other beasts have been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. What is it the Ancient of Days is doing? He is saying, you over here, you have this kind of temporary authority, but here is one who has got eternal authority, the one whose kingdom will never, ever pass away. And so what do we see as we, we get this vision of this one like a, a son of man? Well, it's clear from this language that the son of man is, is divine. He's coming with the clouds of heaven. That is language from, from Exodus, from parts of Ezekiel, that, that are only associated with God, that he comes with the clouds of heaven. He's given authority and glory and sovereign power. Peoples of every language worship him. Well, nobody gets, is worthy of worship apart from God himself. So he is divine, yet clearly he is separate from the ancient of days. This son of man is not the ancient of days, and yet seems to be, on a level with him and seems to be similar to him in, in lots of ways. And yet the description of him at the center is that like, he is like a son of man. He is like a human being. And whereas when the ancient of days is described using kind of human language, his clothing was white as snow, we get the impression that's kind of more symbolic, but there's something kind of concrete about this son of man. There is something different about this son of man's humanity that is different from language that's used to describe the Ancient of Days. It seems the Ancient of Days isn't kind of properly human, but it seems that this son of man is, and yet still seems to be God himself. But there's more than that. that as we um, carry on into Genesis 7, it seems that we're back in, in Genesis 5, where it seems there is this kind of singular and corporate idea um, going on. Look at verse 18. The angel begins to interpret what's going on. Um, this kingdom that we've heard about, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom, will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Whose is the kingdom? Well, it's this son of man. But whose is the kingdom? Well, it's those who are kind of associated with, with this son of man, with Most High. Look at verse 27 over the page. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Who is the one with authority and glory and power? Well, it seems to be the, the, the Most High, the authority given to the Son of Man, but also to um, the holy people. There seems to be, again, this singular and corporate nature to it, that this, this Son of Man seems to be a representative that through the Son of Man, there is this godly authority that the rest of humanity, now called holy, seem to possess. It seems to be that there is someone who is going to enter into the presence of God, but seemingly on a level with God, but bring humanity with him. It's almost as if this Son of Man is like a, a high priest coming into the holy place, bringing the people with him. But we're not told anything about really this son of man. We don't really know who he is or how it's all going to work out. 
until the carpenter's son from Nazareth takes this name upon himself. Nobody else calls Jesus the, the son of man in, in the Gospels. It's referred to that in Acts. But right at the beginning, Jesus takes this name for himself. Those of you who've been following the, the morning series will um, have heard when Neil took us through the, the, the calling of Philip and Nathaniel, page 1064. And there's this whole thing about how Nathaniel is a bit sceptical because nothing good comes from Nazareth. Um, and meets Jesus, and Jesus tells him something that is clearly revolutionizes Nathaniel's life. And Nathaniel, in verse 49, declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Again, this takes us back to the Old Testament. Flip back with me to Genesis chapter 28. So Genesis chapter 28 is uh, on page 30. And at this moment, um, Jacob is in a tricky situation. Jacob's always in a tricky situation. Uh, he, I don't want to push it too far, but he's, he's, he's almost in, in exile. He's um, away from um, home. He's terrified of um, Esau. And as he's kind of heading out and uh, traveling along, uh, trying to find himself a wife, all men are in exile till they find themselves a wife. Um, don't quote that. Um, he has this incredible um, encounter um, with the Lord. 28 and verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And he sees this, this vision of God. Verse 16, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And interesting that when Jacob reflects on what he's seen, he doesn't say, this is the place where I saw the house of God. This is the place where I saw where God is. He says, no, he says, this is the house of God. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. So he sees this ladder uh, that the, uh, the angels of God are sending and descending upon. He sees it as the place where God comes to make his home on earth. So he calls it Bethel, house of God. Because through this ladder that the angels are kind of going up and down like an escalator, it's the place where God comes to make his home with his people. So why does Jesus take this upon himself and link it to him being the son of man? He had a very true, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Whereas in the Old Testament, we ask, what is the ladder? In the New Testament, we ask, who is the ladder? And so what we see, if we piece these two things together, we see the son of man, this picture of the one who is given authority by God, and we see this ladder as the place that connects heaven and earth and enables God to come and uh, dwell with his people, we see that it's in Jesus, that he has the authority to connect heaven and earth. Nothing good can come from Nazareth, except from Bethlehem via Nazareth comes the one who can connect heaven and earth. That is the authority that he has in himself. He in and of himself can bring the glory and the splendor and the majesty, the perfection, the holiness of heaven to the dirt of earth. It reminds us that the distance between heaven and earth isn't geographical. It's not that heaven is all the way over there. And if we build a space rocket good enough, we can find heaven. That's not how it is. Heaven and earth are not separated by geography. They're separated by sin. And so when Jesus demonstrates that he is the ladder, it's not that he is really big and it stretches from heaven to earth. Just in his perfection, he's able to bring humanity to heaven. Let me go to Luke 5. I'm reversing the order of the, uh, the gospel. We're going John, Luke, Mark, Matthew. Uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 17, 1032. Initially, I'd wrote in the notes that we're going to do it from Mark, and then I thought we'll do one from each, each gospel. Again, it's a very familiar story. Uh, it's the favorite story of um, children's Bibles and Sunday school talks. 
uh, where the fellas have got the, uh, the paralyzed man and they can't get into the house because it's crowded. And so they go up on the roof. Nobody ever mentions the guy who owns the house, do they? Whose roof gets wrecked. Um, poor guy. So they make a hole in the roof, they lower him down. Uh, and it's, it's, it's gold for a preacher because it's obvious what the man's problem is. His legs don't work. And Jesus looks at him and says, uh, your sins are forgiven. And everybody, well, not everybody, uh, the religious guys are outraged. Uh, 21, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law begin thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins? But God alone. I love the fact that even though this is um, first century Palestine, they become kind of um, upper middle class English gentlemen. Who is this fellow? Um, anyway, um, 22, Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. I could go out in the street and meet some random person and tell them that their sins are forgiven. Does that mean anything eternally? Well, if I'm doing it in and of myself, it means absolutely nothing. So Jesus could have just said that, because forgiving sins is easy, because nobody can tell whether it's happened or not. And so he heals the man as a demonstration. But why? So you know that I have authority. He links the son of man and authority. And so you know that I have authority to forgive sins. So the son of man has authority to connect heaven and earth. He's going to do that by exercising his authority to forgive sins. This is how his authority is going to be used. He has this authority, but he's going to use it to forgive sins. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. The verse that we started with, the verse that is shocking, that we have in our minds this vision of the Son of Man, the one who is given all authority, the one who is to be worshipped, the one who seems to be equal with the Ancient of Days and yet different from him. And we read 1045, for even the Son of Man, even the one who is equal with the Ancient of Days, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man has all authority. Everything that is innate in the Ancient of Days, everything that is God's authority by right, is the Son of Man's, the Son of Man's authority. What does he do with it? He gives it up. He doesn't come to be served but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. He has all authority, and yet he gives his life. He dies, because that's how earth and heaven can be connected. That's how sins can be forgiven. That's what his mission is all about. And as he comes close to that day, Matthew 26, he is arrested he is taken, he's put on trial. I say that in inverted commas, put on trial. And the high priest, ironically, the one who is supposed to be the representative of the people, the one who is supposed to bring the people into the presence of God. Verse 62, then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, sorry, this is Matthew 26, page 997. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you from now on, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Again, we're just transported back to Daniel 7. And, and just try and picture the scene. What do you see if you're an onlooker there? You see a man in utter weakness you see a man outnumbered you see a man abandoned you see a man beaten you see a man with not a leg to stand on you see a man who is hours away from being put to death in a shocking and heartbreaking way but what he is doing is that he's demonstrating that the way that the Son of Man exercises his authority is through sacrifice and humiliation. He is showing us that rule and glory, exactly what James and John were asking for, comes after sacrifice and humiliation. You see, when the, when the devil confronted Jesus in the wilderness, 
He offered him the direction that he was already going in. He offered him rule and glory. But he tempted Jesus to do it without sacrifice and humiliation. But Jesus, the son of man, he knows that it's not the way. And so he says, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. My authority is coming. One day, you will see me as I really am. But what do we see here? Well, here we see the judge is being judged. This kangaroo court that he is being tried by, in the not too distant future, he will be trying them as the judge overall. Here, we see the ruler is being ruled. The son of man has all authority. He has a kingdom that will last forever, and yet he is being ruled. He is having authority exercised over him. But soon, he will be the great king and will be seen. He is the author of life, and yet he's about to be put to death because he has come with authority, but he's giving that authority up so that he will die. And we see that, that our exodus from exile is one through the sacrificial service of the Son of Man. How can it be that sinful humanity that only gets itself into exile, how can it know that eternal, that everlasting exodus? Well, it's because Jesus himself allowed himself, gave himself into exile upon the cross so that we may know life and life in abundance. And so just as we saw from Daniel 7, that there was this corporate nature to this singular son of man, that he was uh, leading his uh, people as their representative. What do we see as those united to the son of man? We'll turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Page 1133. Paul is explaining what's happened for those who are united to the Lord Jesus. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. All of us were in exile, away from God, abusing the authority that God had given us, and yet through Christ, by being united to the death of the Son of Man, and then being united to his resurrection, as he was given all of authority given to him. So we are brought out. There is an exodus as we're taken away from slavery and sin and united to him in new life. And what does that look like? Well, Matthew 28, the last words in Matthew's gospel. As the risen, resurrected son of man stands with his disciples, page 1000, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. What does Jesus do with his authority? Well, he gives it to his people so that more people will know who he is. More people will know that salvation. More people will know that exodus out of exile. This is not an authority to be... Um, clung on to it is an exercise an authority to be delegated and to be given out so that you or i can stand on god's authority so i can go to people in the street and say if you come to christ your sins are forgiven because of his authority and his sacrifice and then the famous bit in philippians chapter two i'm sure we all know this Verse three, imagine what our church would be like. Imagine what our nation would be like if verse three was true of us all. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourselves. So much of the sin in my life is because I reverse that. Because in the authority I've been given, I am to value others above myself. And I don't. I abuse the authority. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests 
of the others. And then this probably ancient hymn that shows that the path to glory goes through suffering. We follow a suffering servant. It's why everything around the Son of Man was so shocking because they didn't think the Son of Man and the suffering servant were the same person. And yet here we see it. The one who being in very nature God, the one who is equal with the Ancient of Days, laid aside his majesty, took on the nature of a servant and kept going down and down and down. Jesus went into exile further and further and further until he becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But then God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, the name that is authoritarian over everybody, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our attitude is to be like that, knowing that there is glory to come, but it's the path marked with suffering that gets us there. That any authority we have is to be laid down for the good of others, because that's what Christ did. And then in Revelation chapter one. And you can see Philippians two model that if we start at the beginning of Philippians chapter two there, where it talks about um, equality with God, we see that in Daniel seven. Here is the son of man in the presence of the ancient of days. Philippians two goes down into um, Christ's obedience to death, even death on a cross. And we see that in the Gospels. But then he's exalted to the highest place. And as we come to Revelation 1, we see another glorious vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool and white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Sounds like the ancient of days, doesn't it? His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and I look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Here is the, the son of man, the one who has all authority. And yet what does he do with that authority? Well, he walks amongst the golden lampstands. We're told later on that, that they're the churches. And he walks amongst the church. And then we see in verse 17 and 18 that John, when he catches a glimpse of him, remember this is John who lived with him for three years. That nobody knew Jesus like John. He'd even seen him transfigured. And yet he just does full on face plant before Jesus as if he's dead. But what happens? The Lord lifts him up. And so what are we as those who are united to the son of man? What do we do? Well, we fall down before him to allow him to lift us up. That any authority we think we have, we just lay at his feet and we just come before him and say, I'm dead before you. But then in his grace and in his love and in his authority, he lifts us up. And says, listen, don't be afraid. Look at me. Understand who I am. And I've got work for you to do. The crucified saviour is the risen king. The son of man's authority comes from the fact that he gave himself up. And because he exercises his authority in love. There's been so much uh, in the church recently over the last few years about misuse of authority. Authority is to be exercised sacrificially in love. Authority is not a bad thing. We saw it in the Garden of Eden. We see it in God himself. But the way we exercise it is we look to the Son of Man. We look to the one who's been given all authority and yet used it to give himself up so that we may know him. Jesus is the Son of Man, and that is a glorious, glorious thing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we praise you that you are not like us. We praise you that with all authority, you use it perfectly. That at every moment you walked in step with your father. And that you took your exalted position. And you gave yourself to us. So that we may be lifted up. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that you took the path of suffering. 
that you never once abused the authority that you've been given. That you went to the cross so that that ladder to heaven that brings the glory and the splendor, the perfection, the holiness of heaven to earth could be seen in you. Father, help us, help us as broken yet restored children of God to live out this authority. To be quick to show how it is that God has made us and commissioned us to live and yet to do it in a way which values others above ourselves and expects suffering and hardship because it is the, the path of Jesus. Thank you that there is glory to come. Thank you that there is this glorious vision of new creation when we will rule and reign and we will perfectly live out the people uh, that we, you made us to be. Father, thank you for your eternal goodness to us. And thank you that it is centered upon the Lord Jesus. We praise you for him and for all that he means. In Jesus' name, amen.